Welcome to The Lateral Dialogues, a podcast series by The Lateral Space. We aspire to bring a different or novel perspective on every topic by hosting guests whose ideas push our existing or mainstream thinking further. My name is Warden Hoffman, co-founder of The Lateral Space, a consultancy that focuses on organizational and team collaboration. As always today, I'm together with my co-host Petro Zoratis and a guest who I will introduce uh, after I share today's topic. Because today's topic I'm very thrilled to announce. Uh, we're going to talk about climate change or climate crisis. And of course, there's a lot said and written about this topic. Uh, but today we're going to focus on a specific aspect of the impact of climate crisis. And we're going to talk about so-called climate psychology and exploration on how climate change affects us as individuals and how it affects organizations. To help us explore this, we have with us Dr. Rebecca Nestor. Uh, Rebecca Nestor has researched the experience of working in climate crisis and as consultant to people who work in organizations that deal with this matter, climate scientists and campaign groups. Rebecca regularly runs climate cafes, uh, which are opportunities for people to come together in small groups and share their emotional responses on the climate crisis and create meaning together. Next to this, she's also a board member of the Climate Psychology Alliance. As her tagline says, she provides support for those that are facing the climate crisis. Rebecca, welcome. Thank you, Varden. It's great to be here. Looking forward very much to talking with you both today. All right. Thank you, Varden. Welcome, Rebecca. Just to set ourselves up a bit for the conversation, we thought it's very interesting uh, to dedicate this episode on this topic. Rebecca, I followed very closely your research and your work. We know each other from different spaces in that sense. And um, it it is great to have you here to help us understand how we are all psychologically affected by climate change, whether we are actively and consciously preoccupied with it or not. Uh, I think you can help us a little bit understand that maybe we are all affected even when we are not conscious of it. Uh, and then also when we think about the work that we do as leaders or members in organizations, there is some impact also in organizations that are actively working on the climate change impacts, but also those who may struggle to incorporate uh, climate and sustainability uh, in their work. Oftentimes, we might find ourselves as individuals split between wanting to maybe act ourselves to limit the effects on climate. At the same time, we are afraid of what kind of life changes that might mean, or maybe a sense that regardless of what we do, uh, we can't really have an impact. And some of these dilemmas are also very present in large organizations who might be, on one hand, investing in sustainability efforts, but also quickly be confronted with inner conflicts uh, with growth and performance uh, targets. Or a very dominant way of communicating about climate is protest from the early days of Greenpeace till today's Greta Thunberg. So maybe we can think about why do we need to communicate in those ways or what are other ways to communicate. So the focus of today's dialogue is how can we relate to the impacts of climate change and how can we constructively engage on positive change? Thank you, Petros, for the introduction. To start a conversation uh, for you, Rebecca, you studied, uh, you, you researched on, on climate psychology. In your words, what, what is climate psychology? 
Well, the kind of climate psychology that I'm involved with is a little bit different from some of the psychological thinking that you might see in more mainstream discussions about the climate crisis, which often focus on how can we get people to change? Why is it that we don't seem to be really paying attention to this? And that's kind of, if you like, instrumental climate psychology is how can people be nudged or, or, or pushed into, into changing their behaviour. The, the kind of climate psychology that I'm interested in is, is takes a, what I would like to call a compassionate approach to our response to this, this huge issue. And essentially it's saying all the defences that we're aware of from other fields, from other fields of human endeavour, um, and from our relationships and the way we, we live our lives, all of the defences against difficult feelings are intensified and multiplied when we can contemplate the climate crisis. And we need to pay attention to those defences because they show up in everywhere. They show up in the way we continue to lead our lives despite facing an existential threat. They show up in the way we seem to manage to deny the importance of the climate crisis by saying, oh yes, it's terribly important, but not actually doing anything collectively um, or not actually doing anything that's commensurate with the scale of the problem. And the reason we have those defences is that the climate crisis in particular is, is more than just an existential threat to us as individuals. It's an existential threat to the human race and to our fellow inhabitants of this planet. And we're not equipped, really, to respond in, in a thinking way to that. We're always going to be subjected to the threat, and so therefore we're going to be responding in ways that humans respond to threat, frightened, anxious, unable to find a way to think together about it, but of, often kind of hiding in our little individual areas, um, in our individual identities, treating other human beings as the threat rather than the climate crisis itself. Really, really hard to, to think, uh, as I say, in a way that's commensurate with the scale of what we're facing, uh, precisely because of the scale of what we're facing. Yes, and it look, looks already very interesting. I'm very curious about this kind of compassionate approach to uh, to these defenses. Maybe before we dive into that, Rebecca, quickly for the listener, how, how did you how did you end up in this field? I ended up in it because I was a climate activist of a of a fairly old fashioned traditional kind. I worked in a in a small local group that was trying to get people to change their behaviour, and I was really baffled by how difficult the work was, not just in terms of those feelings that all groups like that have of why are people not listening to us, but also the internal dynamics of the group itself, where there just seemed to be such a lot of conflict um, and an insistence on being right. You know, I believed my way was right. Other people believed their way was right. We used to have um, baffling arguments about how we should do our work. And I just began to get curious about it. And that led me into the study of the unconscious impacts on organizations and specifically on how that plays out in climate organizations. So, and, and I remember being absolutely caught up in all this myself. So um, if my, if any of my colleagues are listening, it wasn't your fault. If <laughs> it was all of us, we were all there. <laughs> Maybe a good way to start is to think about this division between those who are passionate about and actively involved with climate and those who are not. It seems already in your introduction that there is something interesting about that dynamic. Could you say a little bit more uh, about this? 
I'm particularly taken with Sally Weintraub's work. Sally has this really engaging phrase, a culture of uncare, so the opposite of care. And what she's saying there is that all of us have caring parts of ourselves and uncaring parts of ourselves. And the trouble right now is that our collective culture, our national, international, global north culture, encourages those parts of ourselves that are uncaring. So we're all encouraged to behave in ways that basically say, don't care that the climate crisis is happening. I want, I need, I'm going to have, I'm going to take, uh, whatever it might be, that long haul flight, that new kitchen gadget, even though I only bought the existing one a year ago. All of those kinds of um, encouragements that we get from advertising and from social media. Why this is helpful, I think, is that there's a very strong tendency, as I was saying a minute ago, for us to form little tribes these days. Um, it doesn't have to be about climate, but anything that my group believes is the truth. Anything another group believes is a pack of lies. And that's what's happening with climate in a, um, in a quite an intense way, I think, that essentially what we're finding is that groups who are taking responsibility for addressing the climate crisis are seeing themselves and being seen by others as the ones who care. Whereas the ones who are saying not yet, or it's not that important, or I'm not sure I believe the science, they are being constructed, they're being described and describing themselves as not caring. And actually that becomes a source of, of identity. Yeah, I'm the kind of person who doesn't believe all this nonsense about climate change. I am the kind of person who believes the science. And actually, we've all got both of those things in us. We're all right sometimes to be sceptical about the science. We know that scientists do their best, but they're not always right. That's the nature of science. So we know that it, it may or not always be exactly accurate and it's not the gospel. But we also all know, I think, that there is this threat. And the trouble is we put all the inconvenient, um, unfamiliar feelings into the, the other group. And so that then just reinforces this polarization, this divide between what you believe because of who you are. So in a, in a way, if I hear you speak, Rebecca, I also understand then that this creates a equilibrium, which is not very helpful, actually, because if I want to consume a lot without having to worry about climate, I have someone else to worry about it, regardless of whether I think or not. And the, and the other way around, also perhaps, if there is some skepticism in me whilst I'm still very active on climate or if I do understand that there is also something about how the world works today, then I also don't have to worry about the complexity of all this. So splitting it into subgroups, it means that we don't have to all hold this complexity and, and therefore also is not very helpful because it sustains a status quo just by creating this sort of multiple group dynamics in a way. Yeah, absolutely. So we, we have a kind of um, what you might call an emotional carbon offsetting where we can get other people to do our feeling for us. We can get other people to feel guilty. From the other side of that, we can also get other people to feel rage or, um, or contempt. Um, all, of those, all of those feelings which are there when we contemplate this huge thing that humanity has never faced before, we can outsource them. And you also mentioned it is an existential threat, right? So it's not just any issue here. This is a, a very massive issue in its complexity, but also in its severity. 
Can you say also how is something as an existential threat impacts our psychology then? I'm thinking that the climate crisis is, it, it is an existential threat, of course, but it is also what some philosophers have called a hyper-object. Timothy Morton calls it a hyper-object. And what he means by that is something that is not really possible for us to get our heads around. Um, so it isn't just about the, the threat side of it, but the idea that our, our brains actually and our culture haven't equipped us to engage with the fact that here we are, here's me, one person, one human being, and somehow I am part of something that has affected and is affecting the weather? What? What the... You know, how is it even possible to imagine that? And of course, and we just kind of pretend it's fine and it is doable. And we talk about the the distancing effect of climate change uh, as if that meant uh, we just don't care because we can't really see it affecting us. And what we, I think what is actually happening is our brains are not equipped to handle the hugeness of it. So there is that as well. But there is also the, as you say, the existential threat. And um, what I think we're, we're facing here is the primitive responses that all humans are prone towards when they're faced with an existential threat. So we go into fight flight. We go into a freeze mode, perhaps. We're more likely to see things in polarized or binary ways. We are just less likely to be able to think. We're also, and I think this is absolutely crucial, we're less likely to feel love. And it seems to me that love is what will see us through this, if anything will. What is the experience of not feeling loved in the context of this topic? Some of the conversations I've been part of in and with climate campaign groups, where people often highly intelligent, highly educated, very empathetic, are really struggling to feel and to express anything other than hatred for those other individuals who are not yet acting in the way they would like to see. And there is a tendency, and I see this in climate scientists in particular, who of course are right at the cold face, as it were, of this issue. There is a tendency to describe those other people as, as not caring, as lazy, as selfish, as, uh, as even corrupt. And of course there is corruption. And of course some individuals are actively working to prevent the actions that we need. But what it feels like to me is that these primitive responses that we're all subject to are leading some of us to express hate rather than to express connection. Let's maybe call it connection rather than love, because love is such a loaded term, isn't it? What we're going to need as human beings to get through this is collaboration of a kind that we've never had to do before. So this issue, the climate crisis, there's no world authority that will take charge and make things happen. We have to collaborate. We have to collaborate across huge national divides, across huge inequalities, across different short-term interests. And we, in order to do that, we need to be empathetic and interested in each other's perspective and willing to give something up and willing to change how we, how we, how we are, how we operate. And you see this in the climate negotiations, the what are known as the conferences of parties. 
Um, people are really trying to do this and it sometimes seems it's almost impossible. That level of collaboration is absolutely necessary for the climate crisis and precisely because of the nature of this crisis, we find it harder than we do anywhere else, I think. I think that's that's the thing with this problem of climate crisis. And I refer to basically the elections we had in the Netherlands a couple of months ago, where climate crisis was always a very important topic, especially for the young people in the Netherlands. And also in earlier elections, that was a, an important topic to vote on. But then things like immigration comes in, which is a very pressing challenge that we see happening every day in our, in our society. And then all of a sudden, the whole climate piece is out of the window especially the young people in the Netherlands, elected a party that is basically on the other side of the climate crisis and just denying it. How would you explain it? How would you explain that like, that, that people, and especially young people, see this challenge, but then something pressing comes up and all of a sudden it's out of the window? It's such a hard thing, isn't it? And there's, I think there are much cleverer people than me trying to get their heads around this rise of the new far-right and um, anti-climate movements in um in the US and in Europe. But I think there is something here about the way, I, I'm not sure that it is about saying that there is something else that has come up. I think the other stuff that is um, on people's minds also carries within it the emotions that we may be feeling about the climate crisis. And just if I just roll back a moment to explain what I mean about that, I think if I'm someone who who believes that the climate scientists are uh, in the pay of government and are just lying, that doesn't mean I don't have feelings about the climate crisis. I, I do have those feelings and I have found a way to tell myself a story about why they don't matter. So the feelings are there and they are influencing how I behave, even though I, what I'm saying is this isn't happening um, or it's not important. So those feelings, they I think they are there in, for example, the Dutch agriculture sector being invited or being perhaps pushed a little hard faster than they were willing to go to consider the environmental impact of farming. And in the response, which is understandably, what about my job? What about my identity? What about my future, the future of my family? There is also this huge thing lurking in the background of what if what I have been doing all my life and in the lives of my parents and grandparents, I have been making this awful threat more likely to come to pass. And that is a terrifying feeling to have. And no wonder people will grab the opportunity to vote for a party that says, it's okay, we can make that go away. So central to what you're describing, Rebecca, is this idea of getting in touch with our role uh, as accountable for the climate crisis. So I could imagine that this is highly connected to what most of us feel, at least I recognize in that way, that the sense of guilt of not doing enough or that central activities that maybe are linked to our livelihood or our professional uh, work and so forth are impactful to the environment. And that comes into a conflict with what we want to do and what we are actually doing. What is the effect of carrying that guilt? And which also doesn't necessarily change behavior. Yeah, thank you. It's, it's, I think you put that really well as a kind of awful dilemma. And, and I have um, a couple of thoughts come to mind. One is 
I have done a little bit of consulting to people in the airline industry. So the airline industry is somehow positioned as the worst of the baddies, um, you know, alongside the uh, oil oil extraction and production companies themselves. There is a tendency to see the oil the um, airline industry as as really really bad. And within that industry, what I found is that the dilemma seemed to be around. Say you are a flight engineer, someone with a with a lot of technical knowledge of how flying works, how to make it more efficient, perhaps, but also just how to how to get that baby off the ground and keep it up there. It is it is a huge part of your identity, and it's it's where you have been successful in your life. You've probably earned a good living, but also you have felt like you are doing something actually useful. Now, suddenly, to be in the last twenty years, perhaps the gradual emergence of accusations of uh, a sense that this work is evil, is going to create guilt in the people who do those kinds of jobs. And and I know that it does, but probably the guilt is too strong to be acknowledged for many people. And so what happens is it gets turned into, it gets turned outwards onto the the people seen as doing the attacking. So so that's one way in which I think the guilt shows up, that it actually doesn't show up. But then if we take it back to a more individual citizen level, which I think may be where you were you were you were starting, I, I do know some people who have absorbed, as it were, all the guilt and who are immobilized by it and who feel that their footprint, their carbon footprint, but also perhaps in a way their physical footprint on the earth needs to be as tiny as they can manage. And that is an awfully painful position to be in because it actually what it means is you, you might find yourself um, you know, actually physically eating less, trying to get through the winter with no heating, uh, feeling terrible if you buy anything. And that so that's at the very extreme end of the way the guilt that we all share has got pushed into a small number of people who are open to it um, and who then really suffering from that. And and I think there's a third example that comes to mind, which is I remember having a conversation with a friend about a couple of years ago, and she had just she had just woken up to the climate crisis, and she just really wanted to talk about it. And she said that she was experiencing inexplicable rage when she saw people in the supermarket using single-use plastic carrier bags, or or buying things with unnecessary packaging. And I do think this question of packaging has has become quite a focus for obsession for some people. And my friend knew that this was a bit weird and that she was, uh, her feelings were disproportionate to the occasion, but she didn't know what to do about it. And I think maybe she was experiencing uh, something where we, we pick one thing or our subconscious picks one thing and goes, that's where I'm going to put all the bad and I'm going to be either attacking myself for it or I'm going to be attacking someone else for doing it. So, you know, it's tough. And the problem is, of course, that we tend to feel that these things, we can't talk about them or we talk about them only to others who are going to say, yes, yes, you're quite right. And we don't have the conversations that might actually really help us bear it. This example of picking one particular activity makes me also think that maybe aside from rage, it also has to do something about sometimes action also is a very good antidote to fear. And in a way, it's also very helpful if I 
if I do something, I might as well convert my fear, my anxiety into something constructive. But I could also imagine it could lead me to an illusionary state that, you know, my, my part is managed. I, I am actually managing something which I may, I may not be managing. So this, this concept of carbon offset that you said could be maybe a link to that. Yeah, I think so. And, you know, of course, action, we all need to take what action we can manage. And so I'm going to be the last person to say, don't take action. <laughs> but I do think that for some of us, and I would include myself in this, there is a, a, a difficult pressure because if we're if we're acting primarily in order to manage our anxiety or our guilt, we're probably going to need to do more action than is um, sustainable for us individually. We're going to get uh, we're going to get burnt out and exhausted, and you know that's the case in most social justice movements. There will be people who are working too hard and getting burnt out. But I do think with climate, because it feels as if the demands are almost infinite and the guilt is almost infinite, we're going to have to keep working in infinitely. And clearly we can't. In our introduction, you shared that you also consult people that are working in the climate crisis. It's strange to say it like that, but to work in sustainability, maybe to help organizations. And I can imagine that that's kind of even a more specific breed of, of roles where you have basically the guilt of a whole organization that you have to carry uh, with the maybe your own kind of drive to change the world. What, what, what did you see, particularly in, in people in those roles? How, do, how did you see that in your in your work? Yeah, I think it's, I, I do agree. It's, it's, that's a really lovely way to put it that the people are carrying the guilt of the whole organization and trying to fit that in among their own sense of, of needing to change the world. And I, I know from other people's studies on this that what often happens is a kind of a disconnect, a, a, an almost conscious adoption of the, of, of a role that fits with the organization. So, People who work in sustainability, for example, are not wanting to be seen as the uh, the people who the social justice warrior, the person who wants to change the world, wanting to be seen as someone who fits within the paradigm of the organisation, and so you know making the business case for sustainability, and that is a hard role to hold if a big part of you doesn't actually believe in it, if a big part of you thinks there isn't a business case for sustainability. <laughs> There is a planetary case, but the business case will lead us down the wrong path. And I think many people leave sustainability because they can no longer bear that that sense of contradiction. Another thing that I, um, I've read again in other people's studies that um, people working in sustainability may be tempted towards is a kind of heroic narrative. Because there you are, you are a bit of a hero, aren't you? You're carrying a flag for doing good in the world in an organization whose whole terms of reference are about making a profit. And that's a heroic, that's a heroic role to hold. And of course, the hero is pretty lonely, in fact. And so again, I think it's completely understandable as a response, but it may lead people down a, a difficult path and a um, you know, personally unsustainable one. I notice that we keep, I keep using this word sustainability or sustainable, both in terms of the work and in terms of the personal 
impact. And that's not a coincidence. It's not just a metaphor. It is actually, I think, the case that in order to take sustainable action of any kind, we need to be able to sustain ourselves. And when the work is this difficult, we can't do that on our own. Maybe, Rebecca, to connect a little bit on, on this topic from the experiences we have had in our consulting practice on such departments, one of the things that come to mind is that it's very often when the big organizational dilemmas occur in the work, let's say, what decisions will be made about a product, whether that will be within the scope of growth uh, and profitability or within the scope of minimizing climate impact. Uh, That dilemma can be split between departments and there is something very strong there that we have experienced around polarization. I mean, for for the ones who work on sustainability, it becomes an extra burden because they have to actually take their emotions down. They have to think, well, I also have a role of assisting, educating, consulting to the other so that we can go into the middle ground. So it it is very demanding as a role with also the additional pressure that I have to acknowledge that maybe even if there is a a power dynamic here, I will be on the weaker side. So I will be the one who will not win the dilemma. So actually, it's a very complex role if we can think about it, because I've been given a mandate, I've been given authority and so forth to, to take responsibility over these targets. But as I, as I do this work, I have to carry all of this. And so I have to actually acknowledge all of that and be in terms with it so that I can then have a positive impact, which is possible, but it is not maybe up to my even ambition or, or standards. That sounds like a really um, important insight. And um, while you were speaking about it, I was being reminded of what it's like to be someone in uh, from a minoritized group working in an organization and trying to be accepted, trying to fit in, try to be successful. And in doing that, often having to deny the reality of one's own experience and accept mostly the, the shared narrative of the dominant groups. A big part of our conversation is that intense feelings get triggered as we as we work on on climate, and those feelings at times prohibit us in taking actually action that matters. And I was I was thinking through the work that you are doing, Rebecca, on the climate cafes, whether you can share a little bit what are the principles of that work that I think relates to coping with difficult emotions uh, related to the work. Absolutely. Climate cafes, as um, as I think of them, and you do see different versions of climate cafes around, are very specifically places where we don't focus on climate action, where we don't focus, for example, on specific things that individuals can do, or what's the what's the best climate policy, climate solution policy for for this or that. So they're not places where people come together to prepare for action or to think about climate action. And that's really countercultural. You know, that's really unusual for people. So what we're doing instead of talking about action is we are talking about how we feel about the climate crisis and 
so many different feelings come up in climate cafes. Um, and I, I can talk a bit about those. But just to say a little bit more about the points of this, we're not talking about action because focusing on action is more liable to mean that those taking part will be activated by their guilt or their shame or their judgment, um, which is kind of the other side of the guilt, isn't it? So if if people come into a climate cafe talking about how they haven't flown since 1990 or they've been a vegan all their life or they have transformed their lives in this or that ways, that's going to have an effect on others and indeed on that individual themselves, which makes it really hard to access the feelings. And so we we say, of course, we're, of course, action is going to be part of the conversation, um, but it's not the focus. And we need to be mindful of that and try to, if you like, protect each other from the guilt and the shame by just saying, we're here to talk about feelings and nothing else. So if you have, um, in the work that you do, I'm sure you offer a lot of reflective spaces for people in organizations where they might be talking about the work, but their primary focus is the, their emotional responses. And that's essentially, it's a version of that. It's, it's a place where we're allowed to say, I feel furious. I feel terrified. I feel very guilty. I don't know about the effect on my children. I don't know whether to have children. I feel the loss of the landscape that I grew up with. I feel the destruction of parts of the world where those who've done least to create this crisis um, are, are living and affected by what's happening. And there is then a, a feeling, a shared feeling in the group where those feelings can be just looked at a little bit and not actually very much because one of the other things about climate cafes is they're not meant to be therapy groups. They're not meant to be spaces where people are actually processing those feelings. They're meant to be places where people can actually have a cup of tea and a slice of cake together, which is why we call them cafes, and share the the human connection, um, the sociability, the hospitality, which takes me back to what I was saying at the beginning about Sally Weintraub's idea of the culture of uncare that we live in. And for me, climate cafes are about trying to take some tentative steps towards a culture of care, where we care for each other, where we give each other things, where we connect with each other and where we are not always talking about the work and the things we have to do, but we just liking being together. Could you say also why it is important to acknowledge feelings and impact and to get a sense of connectedness and care in order to do the work? It sounds self-explanatory, but I think maybe it's helpful if you, if you have seen this as a central part because of our emotional response to the work, can, can you say why it is important? I mean, it's so exhausting, isn't it? Holding all those feelings on our own. If we're exhausted by the feelings that we're constantly having to defend against, we've got less energy for the work. And, it's, and at one level, it's really simple like that, I think. But I think there's more to it than that. I think if we can manage to share feelings across some social divides, then we are more likely to be able to see that others have some of the feelings that we have too. Now, I'm not saying that we have run successful climate cafes involving climate deniers and members of the, of the anti-vax movement or, the, or um, other common current tribes, if you like. But we have managed to hold a space occasionally where people 
are expressing deep scepticism about the climate crisis, but are also expressing the fear that is in the background about it. And so I I think that is extremely powerful. And in our very polarised world, it's it's needed. It's trying to find a way to see each other as human beings across these divides. A lot of your research was focused on those who, who communicate about climate crisis in the efforts for impact. I think you have been very curious to understand the impossibility of that task uh, in that sense of whether you it has to be in a protest or a daunting way or whether it has to be in a en- encouraging or hopeful way. C- can you say why the focus on those communicating climate and what's so um, specific or challenging to this role? I think people working on communicating climate change are, are working across boundaries in some quite powerful and difficult ways. So imagine you're a campaign manager in a, in a in a big charity that's communicating climate change to the public, trying to get people to see what they can do, but also trying to motivate them to, to, to act and to support the organization's campaigns. So in that role, you have to be calling on the science the the climate science, but you also have to be aware of and working with some of the social science ideas about how we communicate, how we engage people. You've got to be in touch with the reality of the climate science, but you may also be feeling we've got to be hopeful and to help people act because people are more likely to act if they feel some kind of hope is, is the argument. And so what I think, what this is where my research focused, what I think happens to people working in those kinds of roles is they're, they're working across those boundaries in ways, in, in too many ways to manage. Actually, it's too much for people to, um, to bear in the long term. And, you know, several of my participants in my fieldwork have left their jobs now. Um, one of them is specifically working on how we can look after each other in the climate movement, how we can create resilience, how we can um, bear it together and manage. And for many people, there does seem to be a, and I would include myself in this, a need to have breaks. I mean, significant breaks, you know, several months sometimes to be able to come back because it's it's like walking four tightropes at once, you know, and it's too much for a human body to manage. I think the other, I think just to say a little bit more about those different tightropes, a lot of climate climate campaign groups are actually part of the mainstream of society. You know, they might be a charity, they might be part of quite a important, you know, the, like the third sector in the UK. It, a, lot of, a lot of the members of those charities are on the boards of other organisations. They're consulted by government and so on. They're part of the establishment. And so again, it's a bit like being a sustainability professional. You struggle a bit with the idea that you're trying to change the, the ground you're walking on. Uh, the organization you're part of is part of the status quo and you need to change the status quo. Very, very difficult. Building the road while walking, all of those kinds of metaphors I think are relevant here. So there's that. Um, And then, of course, there is the being attacked. This is a pack of lies. You are not people who are in good faith. Uh, You want us to become a world communist order. This idea of 15-minute cities, just this simple idea that people would be able to walk to the chemist and the library, has become described as a tool of communist control of the world. And it's very, it shakes the ground you're walking on again. It makes, it makes, I think, people feel, oh, what is, what, where is there any consensus? Where is it the case that we can agree on anything? 
Um, and so not surprising then if people retreat into their bubbles a bit because it's quite scary out there. I've been listening to uh, to what we said, and and we talked about the the guilt. We talk about uh, how it triggers our defense responses. How we talked about communication, how difficult it can be also to be attacked. So, uh, Rebecca, if 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 we could ask like an open question, so if if we want to engage in this climate crisis idea, in solutions, in working in this space, what would be a sustainable way? What would be the advice that you would give to me, for example, if I want to be more active in this? Thank you for asking that question. That feels very, very important. I think I would say the first and most important thing is to start to talk about it with others. And this is what increasingly climate scientists are saying, in fact, that it's one of the barriers that we face to climate action is that there has been this, what is sometimes called a socially constructed silence around the issue that is what enables us to continue to lead our lives in ways that in fact are unsustainable. So start to talk about it with friends and family, focus on the feelings, focus on acknowledging guilt and dilemmas and uh, perhaps other feelings that are less acceptable, like perhaps scepticism or despair, sometimes that might come in too, and just actually looking to have emotionally focused conversations. So that's the first thing, because those open up other conversations in surprising ways, I think. The other thing I would say is be careful about taking action by yourself There are two reasons for this. One is the obvious reason that there are big feelings here. And if you're trying to act on your own, you're not getting the support that you might need in order to to, to bear the the activities and the the truths that it's putting you in touch with. But the other reason is a a more uh, instrumental one, if you like, which is that we, we have to act together. We have to collaborate on addressing the climate crisis. And if we continue to accept the idea that this is all about my carbon footprint, we're going to do, we're going to very quickly come up against the impossibility of reducing my carbon footprint in a world where much of it is made for me. And we're going to get despairing very quickly. Our world, our society, our global North culture treats us as individuals. And that's convenient, I think, in late capitalism, that we are consumers, we are people who act on our own. And uh, actually, we are not. We are social beings. We need to act against that mindset. We need to refuse to be isolated. So find find a group that's doing something you agree with in your local area. It might be looking after a bit of green space. It might be providing uh, education for children. In, uh, on the climate crisis. It might be uh, putting renewable energy on the roof of a, of a community building. Find a group that's doing something you think, yeah, I, I think I could get behind that and, and go and talk to them and see what, see what you can do to help. So as you see, I'm focusing there on what we might do as citizens, but perhaps there's something about what we can do in our workplaces as well. You know, is there a bunch of sustainability champions in your workplace Perhaps you look at them and think, oh, yeah, they're a bit worthy. Perhaps I don't want to be part of that. But, you know, perhaps perhaps they're not all that worthy. Perhaps some of them are a bit more like you. So, again, go and have those conversations.
Thank you, Rebecca, for this last piece of what we can do about it. And uh, thank you for the whole conversation, actually. And I learned a lot of new things. And I think for me, the first aha was already at the, at the start, where you said, if we talk, if we act around climate uh, crisis, and we have, to be, we have to basically have a compassionate approach, and that's how you said it, and pay attention to our defenses. And I, I like that very much because also hey, later on we talked about the guilt and we talked about the splitting effect of this guilt and how difficult then it becomes to bear it. And we talked about the caring and the uncaring and how easy it is then to create tribes and basically create groups where you believe everything which, which is in the group and basically all the bad is put out in the other group and the polarization comes in. And these are always like like we maybe naturally act and react on, on, on a problem that's so big, that's so difficult to get our heads around. And all these defenses, indeed, if we start paying attention to them, they, can, they might be uh, helpful. And especially if we talk about working in such a big area and, and, and having such a big conflict like, like, like the climate crisis, then it's very easy to fall into the guilt. And we talked about basically three, three ways of, of, of work with the guilt. One is to fight it and to become basically anti-climate crisis and deny it and fight it. The other one is fully being immobilized by it and, and, and being shut down or maybe overreacting to others. That's like the third one. Uh, and I think it's good to think about, and if it made me think about in, which, in wh which one am I? And I think I'm just maybe swapping these three different uh, uh, positions all the time. And I think that the big question is how, how to bear it, how to work with all this uh, enormity and how to work with, with the guilt. I liked especially the part where we also talked about how do we, uh, when we are persons, when we are people that work in an organization in a sustainability role, and we work with some of our clients that are in that role, and where on one hand you have people that basically uh, try to fit in the larger organization where it becomes very difficult to work the sustainability story, and then it's maybe even overlooked, or you take the other, other position where you have the heroic narrative. And then the opposite can become true, that you become quite lonely in the organization and it becomes very difficult to actually get the message out. So these are two outers of that, 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 that paradox. Shall I fit in the organization and maybe not be the disturber? Or am I the fully heroic uh, part? I like that you said in that context, uh, uh, Rebecca, that to take sustainability action, uh, we have to first sustain ourselves and be successful in the organization that we want to move on. And we talked about communication, how to bear all this, uh, to how to have on one hand the scientific story and, and, and maybe yeah, the, the, the doom part, but also have the, the message of hope. And in that same position, also deal with the possibility of being attacked because of it. For me, the big aha was, was when we talked about how can we deal with this? How can we engage with this? And, and I like the work that you do in the climate cafes, Rebecca, where you I said we don't focus on action. We don't focus on moving forward because that's also maybe where the splitting energy is. But we first take a step to the now and say, okay, how does it feel for me? What is the guilt maybe that is there? To have the discussion about the feelings and about uh, basically how it, how it works for you in this perspective. And I think that's also maybe if, if we talk about how do I want to engage in, in, in the sustainability story, how can I move forward? And maybe then the first step is to start talk about it with others, not in a, uh, in a way that splits the group, not in a way to, uh, where we have to take action, but in a way of feelings. How does it make me feel and how do I see other people working it? And the second part that you said on how can we engage, and I like that very much, be, be careful not to be a loner eh? and, and how society sets us up as individuals, but actually we are societal animals. So we, we, we need to have a group around us. So to look at, okay, are there groups around me that I can join, that, that we can work together and also in the workplace 
uh, can we act and maybe create a movement with other people? And I like that. And I think that's also creating maybe a more of a safe space to, to move forward in this difficult uh, dilemma. So that's what I picked up from it, uh, Rebecca. Rebecca, does it make sense if I, if I say this? Wow. I wish I'd written all of that down. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I noticed that when you were doing your summary, that the, the phrase, how can we bear it, was a big part of what you what you said a few times, I think. And I think that one of the things that's most difficult to bear is uncertainty. And so we create certainty because we we struggle with uncertainty. And a couple of years ago, you may remember the film Don't Look Up came out and it was intended to be a a parable on uh, the climate crisis. And it ends with the people who've been trying to get everybody to listen and to look up. They have accepted it's not going to happen and they just have a meal with family and friends. And it's it's a very touching moment because they're connecting with each other and they love each other and they look up and they get a sense of what a time it's been that they've had because they know they're going to die they know this um uh, this this comet is go- is going to come and it is going to be the destruction of the earth now the thing about the climate crisis is that it, we don't know we have to bear the uncertainty and we have got to love each other in order to bear it but that doesn't mean we're going into a place of despair it means we are in trying to maintain our capacity to think, to to envisage a, a different future, perhaps. Um, and we we don't do that on our own. We have to do that with other people. It's this phrase from explorations of the experience, the destruction of uh, First Nations in North America. Um, it's this this phrase, radical hope that comes from a position of, we don't know what's coming. What we do know is that we're currently not equipped to, to think about it or to, or, or to manage it. And so our hope has to come from the idea that we will be able to develop a capacity to get through this in some way or other. So I think that's the work right now for all of us. Rebecca, thank you very much for being with us today and um, getting us to be more in touch with this topic and with uh, with our feelings around this, uh, maybe shifting some of our thoughts and actions. Thank you very much. Thank you.